Hello, Ben Chan. I mean, welcome to the sixth episode of the Go Get Outside podcast. I am your host, Jason Milligan. That's right. This is episode six coming to you from the official Go Get Outside recording studio, also known as Erica's Walk-In Closet. This is episode six, the fifth interview. That means we are one quarter of the way through this season. If you like the show, good news. Three times as much content is left. If you don't like the show, my apologies. On today's show, we've got my buddy up in Salt Lake City, Dusty Hewlett. He is an entrepreneur, an outdoorsman, and a prankster. He's also a filmmaker, making a really cool documentary about bears in Colorado. I met up with him in Liberty Park in Salt Lake City shortly after the end of the Outdoor Retailer Show, and we recorded this interview where you're going to get to hear all about his adventures all over the country, all over the world even, how he used to be a bus driver, his time in the Boy Scouts, his time as a filmmaker, and whatever else we got to, including why he is a bit notorious in Yellowstone National Park. So let's get to that. Let's get to Dusty Hewlett. here at Liberty Park where people are bare fist boxing. So I'm Dusty. I've never received a speeding ticket, but I have been ticketed for disturbing the peace in Yellowstone National Park with a gorilla costume. I have received speeding tickets, including one a few weeks ago, and I have not been arrested for disturbing the peace in a gorilla costume. Although I did have a cop threaten me because I was wearing a Miss Louisiana costume (laughs) at some sort of club. And I tried to hug him or something. But that was a long time ago. All right, so let's get to what this podcast is about and not about weird stories from my youth. So you currently live in Salt Lake City. It's true. That is accurate, correct? That is is not a misrepresentation. Let me check. Yep, still in Salt Lake. Check Check your ID? Yeah. But you said you grew up in Idaho Falls? It's true. I grew up in Idaho Falls first 18 years of my life and then came down to Utah for school. Spent a year here and then went to Brazil for a couple years as a missionary. And then I spent uh, the rest of the time down there in Provo, Utah, going to school. And then bounced back and forth between Jackson Hole in the summertime where I worked. I did a summer up in Juneau, Alaska as well. Let's see, it was, it was the first time in a decade that I'd lived somewhere for a year without moving. It was last year. So oh, really? I've been pretty nomadic, kind of all over the place. So now you're trying to settle down and be an adult. So, such an adult. Such an adult. No. I just, uh, you know, I made it a goal to unpack all my boxes, and it took a year to do that. Oh, man. It it doesn't... I could live somewhere for eight years, and I still won't have unpacked all the boxes. And then, I think that's a sign that you should throw those things away, probably, because you clearly don't need them if they're still in a box after eight years. Yeah. Anyway, so you're a pretty active guy, from what I've noticed. You're, You're involved in a lot of outdoor activities, right? It's true. We get outside quite a bit. Let's let's name off some of them. Like I snowboard. Okay. Um, yeah, we do a lot of whitewater rafting. Mm-hmm. So I, I grew up with a, a father who was a scoutmaster for 22 years, and didn't miss a monthly campout for 17 of those. So at, by default, I didn't miss a monthly campout for many of those. 
they, my parents were also volunteer coordinators for a city rafting club, so a lot of whitewater rafting through the Alpine Club there. So you were born into the outdoors. You it's didn't have to true. discover it. It was thrust upon it you. It was, yes. We had every self-propelled mode of transportation you could think of at our house, from whitewater rafts to kayaks to anything in between, bikes and all that stuff. Were you very near the wilderness where you grew up, or rivers, or anything like that? Yeah, so Idaho Falls is a, a small town. I don't know what it is today, maybe seventy or 80,000 people, but it's on the edge of the Snake River Plain, kind of the rolling hills leading up to the Tetons. And then to the north, you have Island Park and Yellowstone. And so it's a pretty quick drive in any direction to get into some pretty awesome, stunning wilderness. And then a, a favorite spot for us is over in central Idaho. Frank Church Wilderness is the largest wilderness outside of Alaska that's untouched. So we do a lot of river trips crisscrossing through that a week at a time with no roads. So that's a, that's a favorite pastime. So, yeah, it's pretty accessible when you're up there on, in the southeast corner of Idaho. And your dad was a scoutmaster, you said. He was a scoutmaster. Does scout that mean master. you started as a Cub Scout? I did it. Did and you Cub went Scouts. Into, into Boy Scout, yep. Eagle Scout, Boy all Scout, that? Boy Scout, Eagle Scout, all the above, yeah. Do you, do you remember the, the motto? The motto. Or the whatever they call it. I'm trying to think which one's which. You got the Oath. The, the motto, oath. maybe and the it's the law. oath then. Oh, there are three. Yeah. Do you remember all three? The motto three? is just be prepared. Oh, right, right, right. What's so the I oath? That the one. oath's what I'm thinking of. What's that one? The oath. Man, now you're putting me on the spot. I am putting you on the spot. Make your make your dad proud right now. It's let's see, on my honor, I will do my best to do my duty to God and my country to help other people and to obey the scout law. Is that it? I think I may I have think that might no, I think that's right because there is an article in some magazine I was looking at recently that that cited the oath and I think I think that's right. I hope so. And if it's not, My I'm sure your dad will really let you know. <laughs> <laughs> He'll disown you. <laughs> and then you'll just have to move forward with the rest of your life. Yeah. Yeah. So Eagle Scout, right? That's the end of the line? Uh it was for me. I think it there's was. some a few other steps you can take, but right. uh, I moved moved on to other adventures. What would be after an eagle? So from a cub to an eagle to like a bear uh, or something? There's the or? Order of the Arrow. And oh, really? I think is the next kind of tier. And then my dad is like, like kind of like a lifetime scout reward. He has the silver beaver. So that's a pretty big deal. And then I think there's there's one more above that. It's like the, it's golden and I can't remember what the, the status is, but that's like very few people will receive. So do you have a bunch of patches? I have lots of merit badges somewhere. Yeah. yeah. I got, I had to get a whole bunch of them to get my eagle. So <laughs> were there any that were particularly interesting? Yeah. I mean, wilderness survival stands out as a, a pretty wild one when you're 12 years old and your, having to build a shelter to s- sleep in. Did your dad just leave you in the middle of somewhere and then if you made it back to civilization you got your merit badge? Is that how it No, worked? no, it was, uh, you know, pre-reality TV so it wasn't infor- it wasn't quite as informed, you know, by by those naked and afraid, you know, dropping people off <laughs> right, in the they, middle of nowhere. He actually allowed you to be clothed? Yeah, yeah. No, but he did a killer job and we had amazing experiences and we'd, we'd show up on a week-long backpacking trip up in the white clouds and uh he would have smuggled in a, li- a couple life jackets so that we could all build rafts and have timed races across this mountain lake that we were had hiked you know 10 miles to get to and uh, so a lot of you know survival challenges that were just pretty hilarious to see people's boats sinking with them still paddling up up to their necks in water a lot of those things were were super fun, super super awesome, and great campouts, killer backpacking trips, all kinds of encounters with wildlife and bears and beautiful places. So. Is there a backcountry cooking merit badge? I feel like there must be. I, I'm trying to think if there's any requirement for 
you have to make there's really a cooking good merit badge or something. But I, I don't think that that is necessarily like an outdoor cooking mm. kind of thing. But we did. I do remember cooking, you know, a lot of fish on sticks and rocks, which is actually a fascinating experiment. Find a flat rock and catch trout and heat her up. Do you heat up the rock? Yeah. You throw it in the fire, let it warm up. Yeah, and you put then the you... rock on the it's next to the fire, get it really hot, and you can cook fish. And you just place the fish on the rock, mm-hmm. or do you place it in tin foil or something? No, like that? Straight, straight on the rock. Wash the rock off, straight on the rock. Yeah. Sweet. It's yeah. a pretty good thing to keep in mind. So I was never a Boy Scout, but my little brother was a Cub Scout for like a year or something. And I remember he had the manual. And the thing I learned from the Cub Scout manual I found really interesting because it's not something I would think I've learned from that organization. The reason I know how to properly tie a tie is from the Cub Scout manual. <laughs> That's, That's awesome. what I gained from the Cub Scouts. Here's, here's a good challenge for you. Maybe you've been wilderness survival, maybe been a different merit badge but uh you have to one of them you had to jump in the water in like a pool of water or a lake fully clothed and then you have to take off your jeans tie the legs like knots in the legs and then empty the water out of them and swing them over your head so that the waist is upside down into the water and it creates an air pocket that's a self-flotation device and you can create like keep yourself buoyant with so that. you make a pfd yeah out of your jeans out of your jeans but the thing is taking your pants off in water especially these days jeans got a lot tighter than since i was a kid uh oh yeah right yeah to, yeah t- so taking your pants off tying the knots but that swinging it over your head is like a 12 year old you know wet jeans you're like drowning while you're trying to get this air bubble formed and it's a real challenge and so next time you're in water fully clothed i can't imagine there are very many organizations that get children to take off their pants <laughs> in front of adults <laughs> there were uh, there were swimsuits involved you're not right, that's very good to know yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm sure all the parents at home are relieved to hear that your dad boy scouts brought you out nonstop. You said he didn't miss a camp out. Mm-hmm. How often were these? Did you say they were monthly? Monthly, yeah. monthly. Okay. Once a month. And then when you weren't doing that, did he have you doing other things other weekends? Yeah, so the whitewater rafting, you know, is a whole different... That was separate of scouts, so uh, annual trips on Memorial Day every year over to Shoop, Idaho to run a stretch in the salmon, and then we were always putting in for permits to try to get week-long trips so, you know, and outside of that, a lot of adventure travel. My parents take us abroad and to Mexico and, and the Caribbean and different places to definitely promoting, a, experiencing things, big, big on the experience side. Experience versus material yeah. possessions. Mm-hmm. So maybe you didn't spend quite so much time with a Nintendo and watching cartoons. I won, an, maybe I did. I won an Xbox at one of those Pepsi displays in a grocery store where you enter the drawing. So we had an Xbox, but... Uh, so you know we we we're well rounded. We were only outside. We <laughs> you, got, you we were got exposed to you know video game violence and things. <laughs> right. to make sure that we're healthy Americans. Make sure you're a nice rounded American exactly. member of society. As an adult now, you're all grown up. You can do whatever you want. You don't have to. You don't have to do what your parents want. So what have you stuck with? Do you still do all those same activities, or did you find that certain ones spoke to you and you kept with those primarily? I've probably taken it, you know, up a notch. There's certain things you can do with a family, and there's things you can do by yourself. So yeah, your really, dad probably didn't take you base jumping, I would imagine. Right, and I haven't gone, and probably won't. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I picked up a, a little bit of rock climbing. Heights weren't my biggest, uh, my forte, I would say. But I've adapted and and picked some of that up. I work in the film industry and the adventure film stuff and and try to find ways for people to pay for me to go to crazy places and film amazing things. So uh, straight out of school, 
you know, I went to the Philippines and filmed all over the islands there and went to Nepal and filmed the group heading into Everest Base Camp and caught the bug of, you know, camera can take you to incredible places and experience amazing things that are pretty off the beaten path. So I think that uh, I'm always seeking those experiences now. I think there's a lot more interest in that. I, like, you know, I just got back from Alaska, you know, icy straits, fishing with my dad, but also, out, you know, looking for opportunities to film. So filming with some rangers and going out and checking out bears and, and stuff like that. And a couple more weeks, we'll head to Haiti to do some work with some nonprofits down there. That should be a wild ride. Yeah, I, I think that where my parents built that foundation in, in us of experiencing, trying new things, seeing the world, and appreciating that in the same way, I kind of latched onto that and trying to trick people into paying me to do it, you know? It's really good to trick people into paying you to do anything. So it sounds kind of like what you're saying is instead of, oh, I want to be an awesome snowboarder or something, kind of what speaks to you more is the exploratory aspect. It's kind of exploring new places, exploring new opportunities, new experiences, and yeah. seeing what life has to offer in that regard. Totally. I've, I've given up on airborne sports. You know, I just a couple broken arms and you realize mm, I'm better, better suited on the ground. You know, <laughs> I'm not out there skiing 80 days a year. I think I got out 10 times last year, but, uh, so you're a slacker is what you're saying. My interests are diverse. <laughs> <laughs> my life doesn't revolve around one. Right. One right. So this Haiti trip, do you want to talk about that a little bit? To be honest, I don't know a whole lot about that trip yet. I'm getting back from Alaska and and was hoping to be debriefed on what's to come with that. But so. instead, I distracted you and made you do this instead. Is so that... yeah, here we are. We're, <laughs> we're we're here instead of learning about what this Haiti trip's all about. Great. So, so if some horrible tragedy befalls you in Haiti, it's probably my fault. Yeah. 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 Definitely. Right. May this you know be the the memory. It'll <laughs> echo on in this podcast. So what we should do is we should have an, a requiem for you mm-hmm. at the end of this, just in case we need it. Please, yeah. please do. I think that would be wise. What about this Alaska trip? You gave you gave us a brief idea of what happened there. Anything stand out? So the Alaska trip was more about getting out with my dad and going fishing because that's like his happy place and he feels badly about how often he thinks about fishing for salmon in Alaska and, and how that's definitely that was the main motive up there fishing for a week. So pretty laid back, more vacation. What kind of fishing is that? That is trolling for salmon through ocean channels amidst the mountains of southeast Alaska, and then deep-sea fishing for halibut. Explain that process to me. I'm super ignorant about fishing-related yeah. sports. You get in a boat. Okay, step, step one. one, get in boat. <laughs> Try do, you, you don't have, do you have to acquire the boat before, or the boat is just there? This, this being more of the vacation side of things, we actually paid to head out to a lodge. Okay, so pay for a boat. Yes, pay a lot of money to go to a fishing lodge that will give you a boat for a week. Or you could acquire one by other means that we aren't necessarily going to describe here. Yeah, piracy's you know an option. Yeah, so you head out in the boat, set up your lines and lures and flashers and all the things you use to attract the fish, and, and then troll along until one grabs on and hits stop and then fight it into the boat. One person's real and the other person's trying to net it. Is this one of those where you beat them with clubs after you catch them, or is that not necessary? Salmon, not so much, but uh, the halibut, definitely. The last time we were up there, I caught an 89-pound halibut. That's almost as heavy as my girlfriend. Really? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) If you get an 89-pound halibut into the small fishing boat with you, there's a chance that you will be thrown out of small fishing boat into (laughs) cold water. So, uh, yes, you do carefully and lovingly bludgeon bash the head in of the fish. Explain how you lovingly, lovingly bash 
the head of the You do it lovingly because, you know, you love the idea of eating that fish. And <laughs> you try to hit it right between the eyes so it's swift and has a quick death. Okay, so you try to be, you try to be as humane as you can yes. when murdering something. Yes, humane murder. That's the way to fish. That's what we recommend here. Humane murder. Yes. Inhumane murder we do not support. Yep. So outside of the fishing element of that trip, we uh, spent a few days in Juneau. In 2008, I was a tour bus driver in Juneau. And so I told cheesy jokes to old people that were getting off cruise ships while I took them to go whale watching or on helicopter tours and stuff. That was an interesting summer in that I got to go on all those tours for free since I worked for the industry. So you know, helicopters up to the top of glaciers to go trekking around through crevasses and ice and different things like that and uh, whale watching to see incredible wildlife and zip lines and all kinds of cool things. Yeah, so we went back up to Juneau this time and, and rode out to the Herbert Glacier where we rented some mountain bikes and cruised out to a really cool glacier, bought some crab from a guy right on his boat that just pulled in with a fresh catch and cooked that in the hostel and made the whole hostel stink like crab. Oh, and everyone thanked you afterwards, Yeah, right? all the vegans were real happy, I think, <laughs> to see us roll in with live crab that we were boiling. And did you did you go to Vegan Hostel? Is that the name of the place? Or it just happened there were a lot of vegans there? Yeah, I think it was something like that, probably called Vegan <laughs> Hostel. Vegan Hostel of Alaska. So you said you were a bus driver back there. You said in 2008? 2008. 2008. So how old would you have been at that time? Do you know how old you are long, now? Long pause. I'm, I'm 29. <laughs> so that would be 22? Yeah, that sounds so, right. So math is not your specialty. Business, you're good in. Math, maybe not so much. I, You know, I'm a little sleep deprived today. <laughs> chalk, chalk that one up to sleep deprivation. I would have let you reference your cell phone if you needed oh, for, for, simple, for simple subtraction. Yeah, yeah. Was that right out of college? So I had been a missionary in Brazil for two years, and that was the summer after I got back. And how'd you end up with that job? Because that's not just a job you find on Craigslist or in the right, local right. paper or something. When I got back from Brazil, I worked as an industrial plumber's assistant for a little while. That summer, okay. that was enough to make me realize that I hated, you know, I had worked a ton of crappy jobs through high school. And yeah, I, re- I, I understand that. I've done that as well. Yeah, yeah. I realized like time, sh- you know, life's short, time's precious. And I had heard about kids having cool jobs, you know, teaching English in Asia or different things like that. A good friend of mine that I grew up with was headed that way. He had a roommate who had done it before. So we heard about it. We cruised up and, you know, they train you down there in Provo, got our driver's licenses and we drove buses to Seattle, put them on a barge, and they shipped them out to Juneau. And then we got there with nowhere to live, so we ended up renting a room in the Unitarian Church for a month, living on air mattresses. Weaseled our way into someone's dining room for the rest of the summer, and then someone gave us a car so we could abandon our crappy mountain bikes we bought at Kmart. The car didn't have working windshield wipers, so we had ropes attached. <laughs> so one, pers- one person would drive, and the other person would op- pull the strings back and forth operating the windshield wipers. You know, that may have been the original way that windshield wipers operate. I Maybe think it was, but I think they had a knob inside, didn't they? I don't know. Despite what you may have heard, I was not alive at the time. <laughs> it's true. That's true. You weren't. Anyway, yeah, so Killer Summer, great adventures, kind of got me thinking about other opportunities like that. So I ended up in Jackson Hole the year after that, working a summer job that eventually would turn into me owning a photo business up there. And I spent four summers there playing in and Jackson. You, you said you still have photographers there that do this, right? Yep, we got four photographers that are taking pictures of rich tourists on horseback rides as we speak. So if by chance any rich people are listening to this and they want to go do this and buy some photos from you, yes, where should they look for that? Uh, they can go horseback riding at the Spring Creek Ranch. Spring Creek Ranch. Yeah. So look that up there if you you're go. rich yes. or you want to pretend to be. <laughs> So I'm not going to let you get away with without this part. You mentioned that 
while you were the bus driver, you told lots of cheesy jokes. It's true. Uh, it so let's me, hear some. It took me like three weeks to bring myself to start telling the type of jokes that would really land with the crowd that's on their 50th wedding anniversary trip. Did you feel bad at night? Give yourself like 10 lashes? I felt like I should have because they were just so, so terribly corny. So for posterity, let's record these for all eternity and share them with the public. All right. So the one that comes to mind, you you see a lot of bald eagles in Alaska. They're kind of all over the place. And uh, so we'd point out a bald eagle and everyone would get stoked and pull out their cameras and be taking pictures. And so I would ask the tour, you know, looking at them in my mirror above my driver's seat, you know, do you guys know how to tell the difference between a male and female bald eagle. And they would say, no, tell us how. And so I would ask them, you know, well, I'd explain some actual factual stuff about, you know, the female being larger than the male and different things like that. So if you can get them side by side, you can compare. But if you get them individually, how can you tell? And they're like, how can you tell? These, they get really excited about this kind of thing. You tell them that you have to get a good look at the talons. And if you can get a good look at the talons, you'll see that the female is often clutching the credit card, whereas the male has the remote control. So it's a very, very big buildup for an amazing punchline. Yes. Did that lead to huge tips at the end of the tour? Tons and tons of $1 bills from grandmas. (laughs) Did you really find that that before you started telling the cheesy jokes and after you started telling the cheesy jokes, the amount of tips increased? Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it was actually a really fun job because people are there to have fun and you just drive around through this tiny weird landlocked city in Alaska and make fun of it as you drive them you know 30 minutes out to a whale watching tour or whatever and people were eating it up and and we got to be pretty decent performers by you know midway through the summer with our sit-down comedy routine essentially on our boom microphone and our captain's seat it's funny because I've done whitewater a few times with guides every single time they've told poor whitewater guide jokes i think it's the standard across the industry to tell bad jokes yep it is okay so you started a business taking photos people on horseback where'd you go from there simultaneously i started a a web business that divided utility bills between roommates and submitted payments directly to utility companies and ran with that while i was finishing up school for a little bit and then abandoned that a year later to then pursue an adventure race Uh, i was kind of like the game show wipeout mixed with a five, 5K fun run style. Here, here's a fact for you. I tried to get on Wipeout. I didn't, but my little 95-pound girlfriend was on Wipeout. Was she? Yeah. How'd she do? She didn't get through the first qualifying thing, but she did okay. If you ever see an episode with a, with a skinny little Mexican girl with cat ears on, that's her. <laughs> nice. So you made a Wipeout-style 5K race. Yeah, so I, I was the creative director and CMO for that company and, and took that around the United States CMO is that chief medical officer? Should have been. I wish that I had more first aid going into that venture. What is a CMO? Uh, chief marketing. Marketing. Officer. Okay. Yeah. Very similar to medical. Yes. Yeah. Did the race thing for a year and a half and left that. Is that race still going on or has it since folded? Or It's uh, maybe 10 months after I left. I heard that uh, one of the key investments that was supposed to come in to help them scale had pulled back. So I'm not sure where they're at right now, but I... I don't think currently there are any races. They're not out on the road at the moment. Okay. What, what were some of the obstacles in that? They were all custom-built, huge inflatables that were, you know, some of them, when they were rolled up, they weighed 3,000 pounds and were the size of a small car. So, oh, my God. And these were inflatable? Yeah. And so, they weighed 3,000 pounds? Yeah. So we would have to hire, like, 12 temp workers to help us unroll them and inflate them and stuff. So and they this were, would tour, right? It would yeah. tour around the country? So it all fit onto a semi and 
drove on to the next city. So and it was set very up expensive to move these things, I would it, imagine. It was a ton of work. It was like we started a circus without the elephants to do the heavy lifting. And right. At a at a buck fifty, I wasn't much of a contributor. <laughs> right. So you you put that race together for a little while, and you moved on from that. Yeah. Your ADD brought you elsewhere. It's true. Yeah. So the all along, I'd been doing film stuff on the side. A lot of the work I did for the race was film related, and kind of the YouTube scene exploded at that point, especially out of Utah. Um, so a lot of my colleagues were building successful YouTube channels uh, in the adventure world. So I was shooting with them and on their projects, and then helping on other people's stuff. So. Uh, basically the last years of just kind of recharging after that last venture and working on a ton of different film projects. So I know one of the film projects you're working on right now, which I think is pretty interesting, is one that involves bears. You want to talk about that for a little bit? Yeah, yeah. To get to the bears, you got to go to the deer first. When I was a kid, as a 12-year-old, my dad hooked up with some people from the local fishing game in Idaho, and they were headed out to do a survey and so I went with them. They set up nets across this ravine and then herded the deer down through it with a helicopter. And the deer hit the nets, and then you're hiding in the bushes and have to run out and tackle the deer. And as a 12-year-old, that was an incredibly... This it, was your version of football growing it, it up? Was, basically, yeah. As a soccer player, that was as close to football as I came. Yeah, pretty much the most insane thing I'd ever seen under adult su- supervision was doing that. So what was the purpose of... Hurting oh, the yeah. deer in the nets right. and then tackling right. them. You kind of left that part out. Leaving that hanging. Uh, no, so <laughs> just one, for fun. Once, yeah, just for a good time. No, they will be adamant that uh, that's not the case. Once they catch the deer, they're putting radio collars on the fawns and tracking surv- survival rates through the winter. They also do blood tests on the does and, and fur samples and fecal samples and all kinds of stuff for this studies that they're doing on mule deer populations. Were you strictly the tackler or did you help collect some specimens? And I was netter and tackler. Okay. I was setting up nets and tackling. Yeah. How was that? Did you like tackling deer? Did it scare, it was, scare you to death? You know, there was one deer, a bunch of came through at once and all the adults were on different deer. So it was me at like age 12 and like a 10 year old kid versus the deer together. Oh, so you tag teamed it. Yeah, so tag teaming that was pretty intense. But yeah, it went well. So anyway, that stuck with me. It was a fascinating thing. I couldn't even believe what I was seeing when it happened. And I wanted, and I had heard more about different studies, and friends of mine started working on different studies. So I went out and shot with last year with the, the team in Idaho doing that same type of study, talking with these other friends who'd gotten involved with that industry of wildlife studies and stuff. I've learned about the one going going on down in Colorado. So hooked up with them, went down, they go into bear dens in the winter and they tranquilize the sows and they pull them out and do similar things. They they put radio collars on them. They change out batteries and download data from the previous year. They count cubs, they do fur samples, measurements. On an occasion they'll pull a tooth from the bear that's like a, a tooth they don't use but they can take that tooth and age the bear with how many layers. Is that the only way they can tell the age of the bear? Apparently that's the only reliable way. So they do a lot of different things like that. So I went down and shot with those guys um, on that, and that's kind of ongoing. So since then, one of the bears we visited, one of her cubs had to be put down, so that's been filmed, and that's going to be kind of part of the story. Some bear attacks have gone down recently in Durango that may roll their way into that story too. So I'd like to follow this one particular bear that had three cubs this year for the next year and kind of check in with her each season and also show what's going on with the study each season and, and make a short film about, about this effort. As we have expanding mountain communities, what that's doing for bear-human interactions and conflicts and what we can do to you know, improve that. 
what are what are some of the issues that they're finding while they're researching these bears it's a, actually a really interesting study they've got uh, not just the bears under study but they also have they're studying people's behavior as well they have a whole bunch of new installations of bear proof garbage cans and they're they're driving that route and checking to see if people are actually using them or if they're using the normal garbage cans to see if it's worth the investment you know trying to get people on board and see how people's behavior is affecting those bear communities so when i when i walked down through durango after i shot with the biologists i found just alleys full of garbage and food strewn all over the place and got some interesting footage of that it wasn't hard to find is there an educational element are they educating the public about how to deal with bears in the area i believe so yeah i've again i'm like scratching the surface on this i kind of went down for a two-day shoot and it was me cold calling people and just kind of showing up and observing so i'll be back down there later this month getting more involved to kind of learn the, the details and ins and outs of more of what's going on i'm not super authoritative per se on mm-hmm. all of the elements but it's pretty pretty cool stuff and what's the group that you're working with on this? What are they called? Um, it's not Fish and Game in Colorado. has a different name. It's Parks and Wildlife Colorado. Is there anywhere people could find out more information about these bears and this group that's monitoring the bears or somehow get involved with this or anything? Um, I don't really think there's involvement on the study side, per se. The biologists kind of have that one under wraps. I think that they will publish the study. It's a, like a five-year study and we're in year four right now. Mm-hmm. So once it concludes, I'm sure they'll be drawing a lot of conclusions and be publishing a lot based on their findings. In the meantime, use the bear-proof garbage cans. <laughs> Don't throw your trash on the ground if you live in bear-prone areas. Yeah. So I want to talk about one of your filming experiences, which is I know you had to crawl down into the bear den and get some footage. Yeah. So tell me about that because that must have been an extremely interesting experience. Yeah, so the the team that I was with, super incredible people, really smart, really athletic. I was struggling to keep up, but once we got there and I got filming with them, they kind of loosened up a little bit and uh, they let me get down in the bear den prior to returning the mother and the yearling that was with her into the den. So they're still asleep and they have them running on an oxygen tank and monitoring their vitals and all that to make sure they're all right. And when they tranquilize them, how long are they typically out, do you know? About an hour or so. Okay. It's not very long. Um, and they start to come out of that, you know, you kind of see them moving just slightly around a little bit. I imagine bit. it probably varies a little bit based on the bear and yeah, weight size and, and any stuff, number of things. Totally. So I got down, it was a pretty, pretty tight belly crawl, like down a chute about four feet basically sliding down ice head first into this rock wall and then you had to make a hard left into the den that opened up to only be about four feet tall maybe eight feet in diameter and she had built a nest in there that kind of kept them up off the rocks i got back in behind the nest and wedged myself between two boulders and set up shop with the camera did you have enough light coming in through the opening or did you have to bring lights with you as well? I, I didn't have lights. Um, so what I did was I, I set up so I could silhouette the action against the opening. And so down came a biologist first and then they start bringing in the bears and it's tight quarters for two bears, let alone two extra people in there. And so they brought in the bears. And at this point, the bear uh, is in between you and the exit. Yeah. That's the only way out. Yeah. This is a 150-pound bear, and they put the yearling laying kind of up on top of her to keep her up out of the... There's some dripping water. So I got two bears between me and the opening, 
And the biologist says on their way out, you know, be sure to be careful of their faces as you head out. And uh, I said, okay. So she leaves, but on her way out, her boot slips and she bumps the nose of the bear. And bear noses are extremely sensitive. And the bear, I just see those silhouetted ears. I got the profile of its head. The ears just raise up, just slowly lift up, you know, to an alert status. And I just, you know, pure adrenaline, just like could feel myself internally freaking out. And uh, you can hear me on the footage actually say, I think she's waking up. I think she's waking (laughs) up. (laughs) So the biologist gets out of the way. And then I do this, you know, wedging myself against the roof of the cave. This is when years of yoga came in handy. Yeah, it's, it's like the twister. The, you remember that game Twister? <laughs> yeah. Spin the dial and right right hand on red. It was more like left foot, not on the bear. So stepped over to the bear, and then the biologist was a lot smaller than me, the technician. So I I ended up having to lay on my back with my feet like hovering above the bear, and in that position I couldn't really do much. So I just had to hold my hands out, and the biologist reached down and they they yanked me out. You know, bit by bit, wiggling out this hole. I didn't get eaten, so success. Yeah, clearly. You, you appear to still have all your appendages yep. and everything else. Got, got the appendages. The bears were fine, and they were they were still asleep, luckily, when I left. So probably one of the wilder experiences recently in my filmmaking career was the fearful moment of waking up a bear in its den. <laughs> I could see where that could concern you a little bit. You also got to shoot with the cubs as well, and... You yeah. even got to hold some of the cubs, didn't you? Yeah, so the next day we went to Bear B7's den. That's the bear that I'm trying to follow. B7 had three cubs this year. And so when they're little tiny cubs that are brand newborn, you know, just a couple months old, they don't tranquilize them. They just hold them. It's like holding the cutest thing on earth with razor blades attached to its paws. Right. They, they're like, they're awesome. <laughs> Very deadly teddy bears. But man, those claws are wild. So I, you know, I filmed and filmed and filmed, and then they let me hold him for a second right before we put him back in, and that was, I, holding three bear cubs at once was pretty hilarious, as they're all squirming around trying to get away and Have, they, and have they formed teeth much? Like, do they milk teeth, or do they have full fangs? Or? At that point, they had really cute little snouts and no teeth, so just oh, so that's really, good. really cute little bear faces with just gums, no teeth. But the claws, man, they were... Like, like cut your shirt up kind of. So clearly those shirt. develop pretty quickly. Yeah. Pretty early on. Yep, first thing. So we, uh, yeah, we, we worked that bear. That bear was so big they couldn't bring it out of the den, so they did all the measurements and stuff, climbing in the den with her, and then uh, put the cubs back and took off. Do you have more shoots planned with them, or are you trying to work on more shoots with them? Yep. My hope is to follow it uh, over the course of a year, check in every, every other month or so, and my next shoot down there is hopefully uh, four days in August, um, later this month, and we'll go out and do a variety of elements of the study, and because this is kind of a hot time, uh, a time when there's a lot of bear activity, they're getting ready for hibernation, so they're stocking up on food and putting on the pounds, so we'll hopefully get some interesting stuff with bears and being trapped, put collars on new bears, and, and also checking in with B7, I'm going to try to follow her by radio caller with one of the technicians and see if we can get some shots of her from a distance. And then you're hoping to have a short piece in the end, right? Yeah, That's and the goal. at this point, you know, you're making a documentary, It's you go in just t- testing the waters as you go, kind of seeing how deep it, they run. Kind of find out what's available to you in the end. Yeah, access and also just the, you know, the depth of the story. At this point, I'm thinking short film. 
there's always the potential to grow to more, but I'm trying to rein it back. When do you think it's likely that that will be complete? My hope is to go full circle with it. So I filmed in the winter this last year, and, and go. I would like to go back to B7's den again this coming winter, and that would be the end of shooting, and then be editing, hopefully for submission festivals during the summer of 2016. So the goal is summer of next year. Yeah. Is that, that's when you'd like to be done. So that's one of your projects you have going on right now. It's Are true. you working on 15, 20 others at the same time? I always have too many irons in the fire. I did the entrepreneurship emphasis in my business program because the idea of a corporate job for 40 years was not something that appealed to me. You know, you have to take into account how risk averse you are. And I would say that my way of dealing with risk is diversification. I have a variety of ventures, you know, from the photo business to my film work to other business ideas that we're always kicking around. Yeah, the, kind of just pursuing that. My, my mission, I guess, is kind of threefold. I'd like to be creatively free, have the financial stability and social impact. And I'm finding that as far as those three are concerned, I also connect really well with film as an art medium because I'm a musician and I do a lot of different things that, you know, different forms of art that I enjoy, but I feel like film encompasses a lot of those and brings them together in cool ways. And can have really cool impacts. Um, Do you occasionally sleep also? Yeah. Okay, just checking. Yeah. It's recommended. Yeah, it's true. I'm due for some hibernation myself. You mentioned something very early on in this, and we kind of glazed over it. And I think now is probably a good time to go back. You mentioned a gorilla costume. You mentioned you disturbed the peace. And we kind of just moved on from there. I feel like there's a story maybe that you'd like to tell there that maybe the audience would like to hear. Oh, man. How many hours do you have? It's not how many hours I have. It's how many hours do you have. What's the, what's the short version of yeah, this story? Yeah, yeah. So disturbing, disturbing the peace, you know, that's all in the eyes of the beholder, right? <laughs> Display of art, you know, a loving gesture. It can be taken in a lot of different ways. Creativity loves constraints. Growing up in a small town in Idaho, we had plenty of the amenities that you would want, you know. But we also had certain limitations. So our town was just small enough that no one... Uh, shot us for the things we did but it was just big enough that no one recognized us on the second time around right really creative group of friends a lot of fun very interesting experiences one of which was buying a gorilla suit on ebay for some reason the idea came to me that you know you go to yellowstone and you just pull over your car and point and six other people will pull over because you know everyone wants to see the animals if you give them something black and furry to look at and you put it across the river and 400 yards out or 300 yards, or however far, they'll stop and they'll stay. This is how this is how the Bigfoot sightings st- began. And then once they stop and stay, it snowballs. So then you have you know the Swedish guy who's like got his scope out now and he's looking through it and he says, "It is not a bear. It is a gorilla." <laughs> and then they're trying to decide if gorillas live in Yellowstone because they thought mountain gorillas were a different continent. And um, so you know we had friends out there, and then I, we had others of us taking turns being planted up on the hillside to be the pointers to get the ball rolling. You know, the tour buses start to unload, and, and then suddenly you have several hundred people there, and, and then traffic's blocked and slowed down, and, and you have cars in lining the side of the road for half a mile each way as people congregate to see this gorilla who's pacing up and down logs and slamming his hands on the ground very <laughs> stereotypically like a monkey, but he's 400 yards away, so you're not really sure what he's doing. So we actually evaded, 
We didn't evade. Okay, let me circle back. That sounds bad. <laughs> While on the hillside, a ranger approached, and a woman asked who had become aware that it was a guy in a gorilla costume. She oh, so had... someone was actually able to figure that quandary out. Yes, yes. Once the big, you know, 800 millimeter wildlife spotter spotting scopes showed up, uh, people caught on pretty quick that there was a t-shirt hanging There's on the back zipper. of it. There's a zipper. Yeah. Uh, so she asked if anything was being done that was illegal. You know, she insisted that there must be because she was very upset that th- there was a gorilla. And How could these people be allowed to entertain us exactly. in, in Yellowstone? They're ruining this, this place for me because I stopped to look at them. And sh- the ranger said, well, he's not doing anything wrong. Oh, really? That's, and that's so good to know. And so that was all the cue we needed to take off. And so we r- drove around and picked him up and took off. As we saw the ranger picking up a second gun from his car and heading out to go talk to the gorilla, but we uh, we got them out of there prior to his 400-yard walk to find them. So we went back two weeks later, and the the, the buffalo had moved into our ideal location for the gorilla scenario. The, the buffalo are always so inconsiderate. They're super inconsiderate. It's true. Uh, so we de- we decided that a gorilla and the buffalo herd might not go over well for the gorilla. So we moved on to a different location. A ranger pulled by. I like that you didn't give up. No. You're like, well, well this th- maybe you know, we can keep doing this. The first time there was four of us, and we drove home talking about how words will never be able to describe the humor of that day, of how absurd and hilarious it was to watch all those people interacting with that scenario. So we came back this time with 11 people because everyone had heard about it, you know. <laughs> this time a ranger pulled past. I didn't want to get a seatbelt ticket because we had too many people crammed in the Suburban, so two of us wandered up the road. And as we did, the ranger approached the, the car of our friends, who they, they decided to lie and tell them they didn't know anything about the gorilla. <laughs> At the same time, the guy in the gorilla suit walked out of the bushes with a plastic bag, which was the gorilla suit. So the ranger ordered them all out of the car. Meanwhile, I'm trying to, I walked up the road and across and was trying to make my way down through the trees to find the gorilla guy who had ran in, into hiding. And by the time I got there, across the street from and able to see the vehicle again, all of our friends are lined up with an armed guard with a shotgun. They're all sitting on the side of the road with their arms behind their backs. And the girl driving the Suburban was being interrogated. And suddenly, we, without intending to become so, we, we had become fugitives. So my friend Zach and I wandered back up to a scenic overlook where we decided we would stay there and enjoy the view until they came and found us, which they did. And they encircled us, had us put our arms out to the side, not up, out to the side, and then try to get off this rock wall with our arms out to the side. And we were frisked in the event that we had, you know, I guess additional gorilla suits on us or something. And It's a very dangerous it's, yeah. Yellowstone gorilla suit. Yeah. And then we were separated and interrogated and belittled by Ranger. I'll leave his name out, I guess. <laughs> That's probably a good idea. Uh, and then uh, we'll call him Ranger Smith. Yeah. So we're interrogated. I I took the heat, and basically they were convinced was it, that was it like a bad cop, good cop kind of situation? Was it was it like an interrogation in a in a cop TV series, or like your friends have already told us everything, but they really haven't said anything? They just want to fool you. They pull that maneuver. Well, the Ranger that uh, that showed up and actually found us first was the one who had been there two weeks prior. And he'd been called over because it had happened in his district first or whatever. 
So he was the expert. So he was the ranger yeah. expert. So he made statements like he had lost sleep over this new species in the park. And they, they as I filled out the report, and imagine, you know, I'm like 17 or 18 years old at this point. I'm sitting there on the curb filling out a report with two rangers belittling me at standing above me talking about how they should get rid of the health clinic and put in a mental institution to put people like me in it. It's like, seriously, these are terrible insults. You guys are adults. I thought you could come up with something better than that. So I'm filling out this report about, uh, you know, the psychological experiment I'd been conducting in the park to see how people would interact with a new species. You know, very sarcastic. And uh, they took the gorilla suit. They confiscated it. Gave me a $100 ticket. And they also took my mannequin head that was in the bag with the gorilla suit. Because they were worried you were going to do something with the mannequin head later? I think you so. You hadn't learned your lesson? Yeah. So we left, and it took us, like, a few weeks to figure out, you know, through various phone calls, uh, how to get the suit back. And you call Yellowstone and say, you know, I'd like to be transferred to the... The comp- keeper of the, the gorilla confiscated suit. items department. And the person on the phone knew the story clearly because they would snicker and say, what was it? And make you say gorilla suit. And so they transfer you. So we finally got there, and the guy at the gate gave us a hard time about getting in there to get it. And and my sarcastic friend challenged him, you know, do you think that's... He asked, do you think something's funny? And the guy said, no, you guys could have been, you know, attacked by a bear out there in that suit. So anyway, to wrap up the story... The entire park staff knows about that. And are you allowed in the park still? I am. Okay, there's no poster of you in a gorilla suit. Like, there's no. Do not allow this person into this campground. But uh, a decade after that happened, I went back to Yellowstone with some of those same friends, and we asked a junior ranger at Old Faithful if they'd ever, if you ever heard of a gorilla in Yellowstone National Park, and he said, "Well, there was this one time." So that the. the uh, the legend lives on. And actually, last year, they called my parents' house looking for me to talk to me because I was the precedent for a new case that had come up in the park. <laughs> so and is there, is there like Yellowstone versus Hewlett? I wish. Or something of that nature. My dad wanted to send me back and let me get arrested at Old Faithful just walking around in the suit and film it all and create a hullabaloo about it, but we never did. I think that is probably a great place to end this with the infamous gorilla story. And, and I encourage everyone, all four or five people that are listening to this, to go to Yellowstone <laughs> and inquire about the legendary mountain gorilla and keep this alive. So the thing we should do now before the show ends is let people know where they can find out what you're doing, keep up with what you're doing, all of that stuff. Where can people find you? Probably uh, tag along on the Instagram journey. I would think that's a good place where I'm publishing tidbits, bits and pieces of the projects that I'm working on. So uh, my Instagram is at Dusty Hewlett, D-U-S-T-Y-H-U-L-E-T. And is that it? That's all you want people to do is go to Instagram? Nothing else? No website? No private phone number you want to share? Anything like that? Um, no private phone number for now. Website's kind of under construction at the moment. So. Okay. Probably Instagram for the short run. Message me on Facebook if you guys want to hire me to go somewhere cool and film something with you. Let's do it. All right. Well, thanks for coming out to the park. Thanks for meeting me here and doing this. Yeah. Good to see you again. Yeah, you too, man. <laughs> Thank you.
All right, and that was Dusty Hewlett. Hope you enjoyed that. If you want to keep up with what he's doing, go to his Instagram page, Dusty Hewlett. There, you can stay up to date with what he has going on. You can contact him that way if you want to collaborate with him, if you have any business inquiries, or in his own words, if you have any cute Mormon friends you want to set him up with, check him out, Dusty Hewlett, on Instagram. And hopefully by fall of next year, fall of 2016, you should be able to catch that bear documentary in various festivals. Go by our website, gogetoutside.com. There you can find the show notes for this show, links to Dusty's Instagram, a bunch of pics of him doing different things outdoors. If you want to get in touch with us here at the show, email us, go at butcherbirdstudios.com or call us up on our Google Voice number, 818-925-0106. I am notorious for breaking in a song and singing the dumbest crap in canyons specifically, but also sometimes on climbing routes. For instance, this past weekend, I was with a friend climbing Cathedral Peak in Tuolumne, and I kept finding myself singing Jingle 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 from the Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer Christmas special. If you don't know that song, you should be ashamed of yourself. If you don't know the Rudolph Red-Nosed Reindeer Christmas special, you should be especially ashamed of yourself. I'm talking about the old, old stop-motion animated one, Burl Ives as a Snowman. If you've never seen that, watch it this year. Learn that song, Jingle, Jingle, Jingle. You, too, can sing it on your route. Why am I mentioning this? Because email us at go at butcherbirdstudios.com or call us at 818-925-0106. I want to know what songs you like to sing when you're climbing, on the trail, doing whatever, or what songs you've been most embarrassed to find yourself singing while you're doing these things. Let me know. If any of you do that, I'll put it on the show. Also, how are you listening to this show? Are you a subscriber of the show? If you're not, why not? Go on Stitcher, iTunes, however you get this. Make sure you subscribe. You'll get the show every week without doing anything. It'll automatically download it for you so you can listen to it. And hey, while you're there subscribing, do me a big favor. Please rate the show, review the show. Sounds like it's not a big deal, but I'm telling you, rating and reviewing the show makes sure it's more likely to be found by other people and it makes sure it ranks up higher on the list so people are more likely to find it. More people that are listening to the show, more likely it continues into season two and on. So do me that favor, please. Subscribe, rate, review, Stitcher, iTunes, tune in wherever you check out the show. Next week, Joanna Turner, Cougar Magic. I know that name sounds misleading. Not the kind of show you might be thinking. It's okay. She's cougar magic because she's a camera trapper. That's one of those people that hides cameras out in the wilderness and gets pictures of wild animals in their natural habitat. She gets a lot of pictures of mountain lions, a.k.a. cougars. Thus, she is cougar magic. Come back next week. Check that out. That show will be a little different. It is a combination interview, and I went out in the field with her, her dog, and a friend of hers, and I recorded some of that experience. So next week's show will be a mixture of some field audio of us out in the field and an interview with Joanna Turner. Come back, check that out. That's it for this week's show. Thanks for downloading this. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you're coming back next time. See you later.